Well, please open up your Bibles to Colossians, the first chapter of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 1. For t- this morning's message, entitled, A Prayer to Remember. A Prayer to Remember, from Colossians 1. Well, as you're well aware, it is the new year. I suspect, being the new year, that there's a lot on your mind. Perhaps it's possibilities, concerns, perhaps decisions that you need to make this year. It's hopes, fears. I have all of them working in my life this year, 2016. All of the above. And as much as I want to try to look ahead, because it's a new year, it's the natural time to do so, to look ahead, I find that my thoughts and my prayers just naturally gravitate to the here and now, the immediate needs, the decisions that I need to make. Schooling choices for children, financial, pressing financial decisions, what vehicle to purchase? What vehicle can I afford? Give me my ailing cars. Health concerns. We all have health concerns. Either we personally or those in our family or friends. There's crises that draw my attention. Others are in crises. All these things prompt us to pray. And that's natural, isn't it? In fact, we should be converting our anxieties and our burdens into prayer. That's why I love Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Love preaching on it. I need it for my own soul. Do not be anxious about anything. Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with supplication, thanksgiving, present your request to God. So it is true and good that when we have these immediate concerns, that we are converting them to prayer, because God uses those things to draw us to Him. But this morning... I want to plant a different type of prayer into your heart and mind for the new year. Why? Because our prayers should not stop with our own immediate needs and situations, but progress and grow. Otherwise, you know what happens? Our prayers can often become insular, root-bound. Begin just to circle around our own immediate needs and those of others. But I believe this morning God has another prayer for you and me. For some, this is going to be a very new prayer. It's not the type of prayer that you are accustomed to praying. But I pray for all of us, this would be a liberating prayer. I believe God wants to unpot our prayers I thought that's a word. Depot, unpot. Take those prayers out of its little pot, okay? So that the roots can expand and deepen beyond your own immediate felt needs. And to help us to do that, we're going to be looking at a familiar thematic prayer of the Apostle Paul. It's a prayer which the Apostle Paul prayed to a church in modern-day Turkey in Colossae. It's a church he'd never been to and a people he did not know or never met in person. Yet this prayer serves as a super relevant model 
our prayer for each of us Christians. And my hope is that it become very, very familiar to us all. It's a prayer that I've prayed for many years. The last few months, daily. First read and was stipulated to pray this prayer from a book by D.A. Carson entitled, They Call to Spiritual Reformation. The byline, subtitle there, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. And ever since then, I've been trying to pray the prayers that we see in Scripture, including those of the Apostle Paul, and learn from them. Because often they're so foreign to the type of prayers that I typically pray. But please hear, what we're studying this morning is not merely, it's not merely, it's not even, a magical formula to recite, to get some blessing. No, no, no. This is a type of prayer. Oh, it's much deeper. That captures the heart and the will and purposes of God. So with that in mind, let's turn now to Colossians 1. I'm going to start up in verse 3. Then we'll hit our prayer, actually, in verse 9. But I'm going to give you some context to this prayer. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, heard what? What we just read, the report of Epaphras, verses 3 through 8, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, here's the content of his prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there's an irony here. Sometimes we need to pray in order to pray. So Lord, we're praying this morning that you'd help us pray. That you would teach us to pray according to your word. Show us, teach us how to pray that we might know your will and we might do it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, church, that's a long passage. I mean, verses uh, 9 through 14, one sentence in the original language. It's one juiced up, caffeinated prayer by the Apostle Paul. So we're going to try to dissect it a little bit. But notice the words at the beginning of verse 9. From the day we heard, 
from the day we heard. What is Paul referring to? Of the report that the Apostle Paul has heard about this church, this congregation in Colossae. He's heard this report. Now, Paul is 1,200 miles away in a prison in Rome. Sent Epaphras, and now he's heard the report of Epaphras about this church in Colossae. He's heard of the Colossians' faith, of their hope, and of their love, the great triad. Their faith in Christ Jesus, their love for one another in the Spirit, and their hope of heaven. He's heard how the gospel is bearing fruit in this church and around the world. That the gospel is on the move. And Paul responds, this is a prayer that recognizes grace. He's heard it. He's heard the grace of the gospel working and permeating a congregation. And he wants more of it. He wants to see more of it. This is a prayer that is encouraged and is fueled by the report of gospel growth and fruitfulness. Last year, I had the opportunity to speak with one of my neighbors who I had not seen in perhaps seven years. He was across the street. He once lived there with his family. They had moved away to South Miami, had not seen them. And he called me over across the street. And my neighbor had a big smile on his face. He was literally effusing joy. And he wanted to tell me something. He said, Corey, I've become a Christian. It's ch- God, through Christ, has changed my family. And I'm back here in the neighborhood because my parents live here. I'm my brother. And I'm witnessing to them. Please pray. I mean, I just, it was the least, I, I just, it came out of the blue. I did not expect it. It was shocking. But what an effect it had at that moment on my soul. My heart burst in thanksgiving. But you know what? It didn't stop with Thanksgiving. Oh, Lord, I want to see your gospel. I want to see more gospel conversions. I want to see your gospel at work. Lord, would you allow me to see more fruit in my life and those of my neighbors in our church? That's what it did. Thanksgiving and prayer. This is what Paul's experiencing right now. He just heard the report. He's saying, thank you. Amen. And bring it on. I want to see more, Lord. That's what Paul is doing in this prayer. And he says, notice, we have not ceased to pray for you. See, Paul is not simply thanking God for the good report and then like, you know, moving on to another prayer. He's heard of his answer to prayer and he's emboldened to keep praying the same prayer. Now, most of my prayers tend to be like milk in the fridge. They have a very limited shelf life. It's like, you know, my prayers just naturally surround the immediate. What's happening on a certain date? It's, it's all about the tyranny of the urgent so often for us, isn't it? And that's not necessarily wrong, but it's like, you know, I'm praying for an event. Then it passes. Situation expires. And I just move on. And at times it can be appropriate. But what we have here in the first chapter of Colossians is a prayer with no limited shelf life. It's a prayer that never grows old. It never spoils. It is never irrelevant. It is never outdated. It never expires. It's a prayer that is perpetually relevant to you and me and every Christian. It's a prayer that is never ran out of town by the urgent 
or the pressing problems around us. It's a prayer that stays the course. What is this prayer? Simply put, verse 9, that we, and those we're praying for, may be filled with the knowledge of his will, i.e., that we would know God's will. Verse 10, why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That we would do God's will. That we would know it, that we would do it. In summary, this is a prayer which centers and orbits around God's will for our lives. That we would, we'll put it on the screen. Here's the main point. That we would know God's will, know it, that we would do it or live it all by his grace. It's that simple. And the prayer is that profound. And I know of no better prayer for you or for me in 2016, in 2026, or 2056. You name it. So let's unpack this prayer further, starting with point one. Know it, referring to God's will. Verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We've got to do a little homework here, okay? A little explaining to do. I think it's easy to read verse 9 and to think, yeah, I'm always praying for God's will. All those future decisions and needs. Lord, should I take that job offer? Should I go to that college? Should I major in that field of study? Should I rent that home? Should I marry that person? Should I buy that couch? Whatever it is, we pray it, right? Once again, that's not to say bad, but that's often our prayers. That would be praying for God's, what we often call his secret will. We don't know it until it occurs, right? Then we know it. That was his will because he's sovereign. Now, once again, it's not wrong, but something different is being prayed for, more profound, I believe. This is not a prayer that we would somehow find God's secret will for our lives. There's an assumption here that God's will is already known. It's already been revealed. What we're praying for here is to know God's will as revealed in his word, right here, the Bible and scripture. And that we would know God's will as revealed in the living word, who is Christ. I believe it's both and. You see, we pray to be filled and guided with the knowledge of God's will is to be centered on God's will as revealed right here. And particularly God's will as revealed in Christ Jesus, what he has purposed to do in Christ. In fact, that really is the book of Colossians. If you keep reading beyond the prayer, Paul is speaking of what God has done and his purpose to do in Christ. And he's praying that you'd be filled with that knowledge. You would know it, right? What does it mean to you that Christ created the universe? What does it mean to you? Do you understand? Do you know what relevance does it have you have for you today that Christ right now is sustaining all things? Do you know it? I don't even know it intellectually. Do you know it? Does it affect how you live? What does it mean to you right now that Christ is the head of the church? reconciling all things to himself, not to mention you. What does that mean? Does that have a bearing on you? To pray to be filled with the knowledge of his will is to pray to be filled with all that God commands of us, but also all that God has done for us and promised to do for us in Christ. 
and in this world. That's what I believe it means. You see, Paul is talking more than just possessing a lot of Bible knowledge or even being able to recite the gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. The good news of Christ. If you were here last week, Todd Augustine preached, and he mentioned how the gospel, we can know it, we can even recite it. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And yet, it can become background noise. Remember that? It can become white noise that we no longer hear, even though we know it. You see, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, it's ultimately to have God's will at the very forefront of our thinking. Not only what he demands of us, but what he has accomplished and is accomplishing for us and in the world in which we live. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will, it affects how we enter the classroom, how we enter the workplace on Monday, how I enter the house when I return from a long day of work. It colors my thoughts, it colors my action, and it colors my reaction as well. Whatever I'm doing, I know that I'm to love God by my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. That plays out in all those situations. Not just in my thoughts and actions, but also in my reactions. I know that I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. But what happens when my neighbor doesn't love me? What happens when my neighbor offends me? Can I forgive them as Christ has forgiven me? What if I feel like I'm the victim? What if I feel like I'm the victim of injustice? I've been unjustly unjustly accused. What does God have to say to me in Christ at that moment? Do I have to be the justice enforcer in my life? Or can I trust the one, Jesus Christ, who's returning to judge the living and the dead? And justice will be done and seen to be done. Can I trust him? This is what it means to be filled with the will of God in all situations. That is a worthy prayer. It's a prayer for transformation. That's not how I think naturally. It's a prayer that we be changed by his word and by his will, that we would actually do it. You see, this prayer is not just knowing. It's a prayer for obedience. It's a prayer for doing. Point two, that we know it, that we would do it or live it. If point one is know God's will, it's what we ought to pray for. Point two is why we should pray. It's stated in verse 10. We should pray this way, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul is praying that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, or in other words, that they would please him, that they would walk out his will, that they would obey him. This word walk is pregnant with meaning in Paul's letters. He uses it, I think, three times in Colossians and numerous times in the sister letter of Ephesians. See, this isn't an aimless walk. This isn't just a little stroll. When he says walk in a manner worthy, this is a purposeful walk as laid out in Scripture and as providentially laid out in your life by God in the very places he has called you to, the very places, the locales where you live, whether it be Hialeah or Pembroke Pines, whether it be living with your in-laws or living all alone, that you would do his will. But we got a problem here. We do. Don't know if you noticed it. 
Maybe you had the question, how could I possibly live a life worthy of the Lord who is peerless and perfect? How can I, how can you, how can we fully please God? Well, let me tell you, you can't. Not in your own strength. Impossible. Not in your own abilities. You see, to please God is to live a life depending upon the grace which he supplies in Christ Jesus. That's the only way, only way we can please him. And Paul does this. He shows us how this is done by using four participles in his prayer. Four action words. They all end in I-N-G that capture or describe what walking by this grace looks like. We're going to put it on the, right here, four participles. Verse 10, that we'd be bearing fruit. Number two, that we'd be increasing in the knowledge of God. Three, being strengthened with all power. By the way, in the ESV, it says, may you be strengthened. It's just trying to make this long sentence more palatable, readable. But really, the literal, it's being strengthened with all power. Then fourthly, giving thanks. These are four manifestations of grace of what it means to walk in a manner worthy, fully pleasing to the Lord. So let's look in more detail at these four manifestations of God's grace. And our point three, by his grace. We're to know his will, we're to live his will, all by his grace. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. This prayer to know and do God's will is firstly a prayer that we would bear fruit in every good work. Do you want to see fruit in your life? I want to see fruit. I want to see fruit in my parenting. I want to see fruit in my marriage. I want to see the fruits of my prayers and evangelizing. I want to see fruit in my work and ministry. I want to taste it. But the reality is, I can't bear fruit. Excuse me, I can't produce it. I can bear it, but I can't produce it. Only God can produce that fruit in your life. But it's also clear that God chose you in Christ. And when he did that, he appointed you to go bear fruit. Listen to John 15. I need to turn there. John 15, verse 5. I am the vine. This is Christ speaking. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 16 of John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Do you see it? It's all of his grace. Made possible by Christ's saving grace and work in your life. See, before you were a Christian, I don't know if you knew this, but you were a dead man walking. You were a dead woman walking. You were a zombie. Blindly following the ways of the world and the principality of this earth. We know that from the book of Ephesians, a sister book to Colossians. Let me read it for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But what was God's will for us in Christ? You better know this. You better be filled with this knowledge of his will in Christ in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you are a new creation in Christ this morning, God has prepared good works for you to walk in, for you, before the foundation of this world. He chose works for you to do, that you would walk in them in obedience by his grace and by his strength. And by doing so, you would please him. And as you walk in those good works, which he has already prepared for you to do, you will then grow. You will increase in the knowledge of God and his will. That was the next participle there, increasing in the knowledge of God. Also in verse 10, as you're faithful to walk out God's call and to do these good works, you know what happens? You know God better. So here's the reality. I like books. They're good. Lectures, sermons, they are not enough for you to fully know God and his will. They're important, but they're not sufficient. All right? It is by doing God's will. It is by tasting and seeing that God is good as we firsthand experience obedience in Christ. As we worship him, then we come to a fuller, more complete understanding of God's will. It's not just knowing it, it's doing it. That's the way in which we grow and increase in the knowledge of God and his will. That too is grace for us. That too feeds and fuels further obedience. It's all of grace. But notice, this whole metaphor, bearing fruit, increasing the knowledge of the Lord, it takes time, doesn't it? It takes time. To walk in a manner with the Lord, to walk speaks of a journey, a lifestyle of obedience over time, temptation, and travails. Walking in obedience, walking out in these good works that God has prepared for you, it's not a sprint, it's not a dash, and neither does fruit mature overnight. Paul is praying that the Colossians would walk faithfully over time by his grace. That's why Paul keeps praying the same prayer, okay? The same prayer over and over because it takes time. It takes time. The youth who are with me this past Friday might have seen this. Got something on my fingertip here. It's a seed. Question is, the youth know it. What type of seed do I have in my hand or on my fingertip? It's a pepper. A green pepper or a red pepper? Well, it's gardening time here in South Florida. Put this little bad boy in my garden. And in about 70 days or so, I might get my first pepper. Sometime probably in early April. Now, I could water it intensely. I could fertilize it. But it's going to take about 70 days. It doesn't matter what I do. First of all, I can't grow this thing. Second of all, I can't even speed it up. Not much, at least. It doesn't matter what I do, what formula is out there. There's nothing that I could do to make this bear fruit or a vegetable or a pepper in one day, two days, ten days, even two weeks. It is impossible. 
Church, do you have the stamina to wait for the fruit? Do you have the stamina to wait 70 days? Do you have the stamina to wait, forget 70 days, 70 years for some fruit which God is producing in your life? I don't imagine many of us have that kind of stamina. Well, you better be praying. And so better I be praying. Oh, pray that God would give us the stamina and the endurance. That God would give us the stamina to faithfully labor and wait for the fruit. Do you have the stamina needed to grow in your personal knowledge of God through trial, through temptation, and through travails, and even through praise? This prayer, Paul's prayer, Colossians 1, which ought to be our prayer, is a prayer that we would have such stamina, that we would have such endurance, all by God's grace. For God has provided the power we need in Christ Jesus. He, and he alone, can give us the stamina that we need to endure. And that leads to the next, the third participle, being strengthened. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power. Or as it reads in the ESV, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Whose might? God's might. It's those who are dependent upon God's power, who know they need it, who know they need to be strengthened by it, by the power he supplies, who please him. This verse 11 more literally reads, being empowered with all power according to the might or power of his glory. You get it? It's like Paul's going over and above and beyond to establish a point that it's God's power working through us and not our own strength which pleases God. It's his glorious power, or more literally, the power of his glory. What is that? We have a clue from another prayer from the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 21. Hear it. This power he's praying for. It is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, Paul is talking about that power. Paul's talking about resurrection power for all of us who believe. But what's that power for? We're praying for power. Is it power for signs and wonders? That's cool. I would like that. That's not what he's talking about. It's a prayer to see demons cast out. The lame walk. I love to see that. Bring it on. But that's not what he's talking about. No, this power he's praying for is the power for you to endure. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In the good works which God has prepared in Christ for you. And he's praying for patient continuance and steadfastness. Oh yeah, with joy. With joy. Doesn't sound very flashy, does it? But church, it's what we need. It's what I need. His power isn't for swiftness. His power is for endurance that we would stay the course. Once you start praying this prayer, I warn you, it's all over scripture. 
this theme of endurance and perseverance, you're going to find it everywhere. It is all over. It's like you ever buy a new car or not a new car, just buy a car, and all of a sudden, like, everyone on the road is driving your car. You never noticed it before. Or you bought that piece of clothing, and all of a sudden, you, you wear it like everyone has it. Well, that's what happens when you start praying this prayer for endurance. It's everywhere. It's all over. All the scripture, we need endurance. Why? Because life is tough. Not just tough because we live in a fallen world. Yes, it is. It's difficult for everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, because we're sinners. We live in a fallen world who is sinful. But it's doubly tough for us as Christians because we have an enemy who seeks to deceive us and to destroy us. Our marriages, even the church. We know in Christ that we will persevere. We will endure by his grace. But may we pray it and may we experience the power that he has given us to endure to the end. This past fall, I had the brilliant idea, brilliant idea to climb a volcano with my wife. Um, we, were in the high, we were in the highlands of Guatemala. I've climbed a number of mountains and I really didn't think much about climbing another one, to be honest. But given the altitude of this mountain and the fact that Cindy and I are, well, not getting any younger, it was a little more of a challenge than we had expected or imagined. But it wasn't the steepness of the mountain. I had climbed steeper mountains before. It wasn't the grade of the slope. It wasn't in the path itself. It was actually pretty well worn. It was none of those things that got us. What nearly killed us was the relentless climb. We were climbing a perfect volcanic cone. There were no flat spots along the way to rest. It was just one unrelenting ascent for four and a half hours over 4,000 feet, climbing in altitude up to 10,000 feet. Of course, what made the matters worse is our Guatemalan guide was like barely breathing. I mean, I was looking. He wasn't even sweating. I mean, there wasn't one. I mean, I, I was really looking. And when he, wasn't, when he wasn't looking at me, I'm like, you know, is there any beads? I mean, I'm just dripping wet, you know. And I didn't see one bead of sweat on his brow. He had a partner with him. He'd already climbed the volcano once that day. That was his job, to get the trash from the top of the mountain to bring it down. He'd already done that. The guy like twice my age, okay? And he'd already done one trip up and down. I don't even know how he did it. Then I made the real big mistake. Oh, this is stupid. I asked the tour guide, I mean, my guide here who was you know, hiking with us, uh, hey, what was the oldest person that you've ever taken up this volcano? I mean, you need to think about it. He goes, oh, yeah. It was an 89-year-old woman from Oregon. I mean, I just like choked and almost died in my pride. Why did I ask that? If I wasn't demoralized before, I was really demoralized. You've got to be kidding. Well, church, God has set the climb for you. He has prepared the path and the good works for you to walk on and to walk in, even if it's up a volcano. Even though the ascent may seem unrelenting, he has promised not just any power, his resurrection power for you. He has reserved his resurrection power specifically for you that you might endure. 
he has reserved the greatest strength imaginable that you and I may endure to the end. Until we reach that summit, until we gain that glorious view and rest by his grace. But this grace that he supplies can often go unnoticed in our lives. But there is one particular act that can bring grace to the forefront of our lives. To paraphrase, I believe, is John Piper. This one act functions like a windshield wiper on a rainy day. It clears away all the muck and the mud that clouds our vision and our ability to see God and his grace. You know what it's called? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That leads to the final fourth participle as a manifestation of God's grace is giving thanks. When we give thanks for Christ and what he's done for us in redeeming us, verses 12 through 14, and relocating us into his kingdom. We are reminded of his saving grace and work, of his saving grace and his sanctifying grace and power towards us who believe. So where does this all bring us this morning? May it bring us to a posture of thanksgiving and prayer individually, and as a church. When you see the gospel at work at Paul and Vista, when you see it at work in your brother and sister, when you see it at work in your family, when you see it at work in your pastors, give thanks, but don't stop there. When you hear the reports of the gospel advancing in places like Turkey, China, Cuba, Nicaragua, give thanks. But don't stop there and just move on. Let your thanks fuel your prayers. Say, Lord, let me not be satisfied with the status quo. Lord, I desire a holy discontentment in 2016. I have tasted, I have seen your grace and fruit. Lord, would you give us more? Lord, we want more. Lord, we need more. That is a prayer that pleases God. Oh, Lord, would you give us more conversions, more growth, more maturation, and more grace. And however small or large these little signs of grace that I see, may I say, bring it on. May I say, Lord, bring it on as only you can. Church, may God give us these continuous and tenacious prayers as a church. And when you sit down and have a time with God in the quiet of your home or wherever you may do it, And you open up God's word with a plan. Have a plan to read God's word this year. And a prayer. When you read, when you study, when you meditate upon God's word, may your prayer be, God, fill me with the knowledge of your word and your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And Lord, help me do it. Help me do it. Just don't pray for yourself, though. Pray for others. Paul was praying for a people he had, not, he had not met while he was in prison, 1,200 miles away. Pray for your brothers and your sisters next to you. Yes, pray for your pastors, that we would be consumed with doing God's will and delighting in it. And in the course of the day, as you're living out your life, when you're tired, when the afternoon comes, 
pray that God would give you the resurrecting power of Christ that would sustain you to continue to walk in his ways. Pray for endurance. Pray for others. Think of others at that moment who may be struggling as well and pray for them too. And when the day is done, you're about to put your head on the pillow. Thank God that you are able to walk in the good works which he prepared for you, albeit imperfectly, yet by his grace. Trusting him for the next day as you awake and the next day and the next that the Lord takes you home. Church, that is a prayer for 2016 and beyond. That is a prayer to remember. Worship team, why don't you come on up at this time. Let us respond, church, with one last song, The Glories of Calvary. Let us sing that. As we transition... This is part of our worship service. This is a part we respond in faith, church. I want to let you know that we are going to be praying as a church. We often have a prayer and fasting week at the beginning of the new year. That's going to occur this year. Not this coming week, but the following week. January 17th, the week of. And we're going to pray. We're going to ask you to pray, dedicate the community groups to prayer. And Al and I are working on having some venues set up that we can pray at other times as well. That we can be praying this prayer as a church for one another. That we can be agreeing with God, seeing the grace of the gospel go forth and say, Lord, may we see it. May we see more of it in 2016. But to do all this, to pray, it is fueled by thanksgiving. So we're going to sing this last song, Glories of Calvary, thanking God for what he's done for us in Christ. And in doing so, praying that God may take us deeper into the glories of Calvary this next year. Let us stand and let us sing in response.